This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. This week's edition is focused on climate change, as world leaders gather in Glasgow at the UN Climate Conference, COP26. The first ever UN Climate Conference took place in 1995, and this is the 26th, hence COP26. But many believe it's the most important yet, a last chance to get the world off the path to disaster. Some 30,000 delegates from 200 countries have descended on Glasgow for the conference, which is scheduled to run until the middle of November. Amongst the delegates is the FT's environment correspondent, Leslie Hook, and she's my guest this week. So does COP26 stand any chance of success? Boris Johnson, Britain's Prime Minister, specialises in jokes and light-hearted rhetoric. But even he struck a sombre note at the opening of the climate conference. The longer we fail to act, the worse it gets, and the higher the price when we are eventually forced by catastrophe to act. Because humanity has long since run down the clock on climate change. It's one minute to midnight on that doomsday clock, and we need to act now. The most passionate address came from one of the most respected and oldest delegates to the conference, the 95-year-old broadcaster and naturalist Sir David Attenborough. If, working apart, we are force powerful enough to destabilise our planet, surely, working together, we are powerful enough to save it. But one possibly ominous sign was the absence of China's leader, Xi Jinping, something noted by US President Joe Biden this week. Look, I mean it sincerely. I think, presumptuous of me to say, talk for another leader, but the fact that China, trying to assert, understandably, a new role in the world as a world leader, not showing up, come on. Because China is now easily the world's largest emitter of carbon dioxide, its participation is crucial to any agreement. And to succeed, the climate conference needs not just passion, but also political commitment and detailed technical agreements. There's a widespread fear that previously agreed targets, such as the goal of keeping warming below 1.5 degrees centigrade, are already slipping away. Indeed, one of the unofficial slogans of the conference has become keep 1.5 alive. When I spoke to Leslie Hook on the line from Glasgow, I asked her why that particular slogan has become so important. Well, Glasgow is often seen as kind of the follow-up to the Paris Climate Summit, which took place in 2015, and that's where the Paris deal was done. But one of the key ambiguities, which some people see as a strength, some people see as a weakness in the Paris Accord, is that it said, our global temperature target is to limit global warming to well below 2 degrees Celsius with best efforts for 1.5 degrees Celsius. And that kind of allowed everyone to take what they wanted away from this deal. 
But now here we are, six years later, the world has already warmed about 1.1 degrees since pre-industrial times. And the science has become a lot clearer on what the impact of a two degree warming world is, what that world looks like, and the impacts of 1.5 degrees. And so there's been a real focus from the UK, which is hosting this COP, and from a lot of developed and developing countries on trying to get that 1.5 degree target to be feasible. Uh, And that's much, much harder target to meet than two degrees. It will require countries to reach net zero emissions by the middle of the century and cut CO2 emissions by around 40% just this decade. So it's a really big, big ask. And it's a long way from our current trajectory, which is uh, for around 2.7 degrees. The UN does a report card just ahead of the COP where they kind of add up all the climate pledges made by all the countries. And their latest conclusion is that these pledges put us on track for 2.7 degrees, which is still a lot warmer than 1.5. So did that mean that people went into the conference in some senses already slightly demoralised because committed to a goal that they simultaneously think is incredibly important, 1.5, but also that is kind of disappearing over the horizon and it feels unrealistic given the current state of politics that they're going to do it? Well, There are detractors. Not everyone totally agrees with the focus on 1.5. And one country that finds this target a little bit problematic is China. Their point is, look, we already negotiated the Paris Agreement. We agreed the Paris Accord. How come we're changing the goalposts now and saying two degrees is wrong and it must be 1.5? So this goal hasn't really been embraced equally by everyone In terms of just the mood coming into the beginning of Glasgow and the beginning of COP26, I'd say the mood here has actually been fairly upbeat. There was a lot of questions around, would this conference even happen? Would it be called off at the last minute due to the pandemic? It's already been delayed a year and it's been quite a tough set of logistics So there was a lot of sort of question marks hanging over the conference. and, And so far, just a few days in, it's gone pretty well. Another boost came from the G20, which met in Rome just days before the COP began. And climate was a very big focus on the G20. And there was quite a bit of progress there compared to previous G20 leader statements on the issue of coal in particular. I mean, you you mentioned China there. And I mean, I hate to be sort of relentlessly negative, but They are the world's largest emitter, and Xi Jinping is a notable absentee at COP. So what does that say? That's right. And we knew that Xi Jinping probably wasn't going to come. He hasn't left China since the beginning of the pandemic, and so he wasn't really expected in person. But one of the shocks of the first day of the COP was that he didn't even send a video message, just a written statement that was uploaded to the COP website. So you have this sort of very awkward program of world leaders that's published the agenda for the speaker schedule. And at the bottom of the list, it says Xi Jinping, comma, written statement to be uploaded to the website. So the optics of that are certainly not great. That said, China has made a pretty big step already. Xi Jinping did address the UN General Assembly in September and said that China would quit financing for coal plants overseas. So that includes all the coal plants in the Belt and Road, all the coal that China's been funding in developing countries, no more 
new coal funded by China. And so that was a very major step from China. But what we've seen since then is that China's been a bit unwilling to sort of participate in the COP cycle of enthusiasm and ambition. And they didn't change their climate targets, for example, They submitted their formal documents to the UN about what their climate targets are last week. And they just submitted the same numbers that Xi Jinping had already sort of announced. They didn't make any type of improvement there. So I would say in terms of China's climate policy, it's certainly not all bad. There was a bit of a rush, I think, perhaps in Europe to say, oh, you know, China's climate targets are a disappointment. But, you know, in fact, they do have a target to reach carbon neutrality by 2060, They do have a target to peak coal this decade. So I wouldn't say that it's all bad, but it certainly could be better. Yeah. I mean, Leslie, you you know China very well. You were based in Beijing for many years. It does strike me that not sending even a video statement sounds like a kind of deliberate snub. And, you know, again, to push back on you with stuff you will have heard before, one of the things you hear is, well, China has made this pledge of not financing overseas coal power stations, but they're opening, you know, a lot in China itself in response to an energy crunch. That's true. They certainly are. And I think that one dynamic at this COP that's quite interesting is how the energy crisis in China and in Europe, which is, of course, manifesting itself in different ways, plays into the decisions that countries are willing to make around their future energy mix. We've seen in China very, very high coal prices, blackouts in some places due to a shortage of coal supply. And at the same time, in Europe, we've, of course, seen very high gas prices that are really starting to be disruptive to electricity prices here. So both China and Europe are dealing with these energy crises with different origins. But I think that does make policymakers a little hesitant to forge ahead with a bold new plan, even though in the long term, of course, you can argue that, well, if you weren't burning coal in the first place, then you wouldn't be worried about the coal shortage. In the short term, I think it's very, very hard if you're facing the prospect of blackouts and supply shortages. It's very, very hard to press ahead with the more ambitious plans. Yes, indeed. I mean, I suppose that in the UK, some are already saying, well, you know, Britain has, which is, I suppose, important because it's it's the host of the conference, has successfully decarbonized its economy, relatively speaking, But one of the consequences of that is that we may be facing a looming energy supply crunch and that this is something that may be true of other countries around the world. So are we already beginning to face the economic slash energy supply consequences of trying to do the right thing in terms of decarbonisation? Yeah, that's a really big question that's sort of being debated on the certainly on the sidelines of COP, not maybe at the centre of it. You know, some people argue, oh, look, this is all because of the energy transition and its high carbon prices in Europe have helped push up electricity prices, which is a bit facile. I think it's about 20% of the increase in electricity prices in Europe is due to carbon prices and the vast majority of it is due to high gas prices. And there's others who say, let's take the long term view. And if we speed up the transition to low carbon energy, then you don't have to worry about a supply crisis like this, because if you're running off wind and solar and batteries and hydro and nuclear, you know, none of those energy sources require the sort of constant fuel supply that a gas plant or a coal plant do. Right. And technically speaking, I mean, this conference is a big deal. I mean, it goes on for two weeks. Do we have or do you have, they have benchmarks of 
what would constitute success by the end of those two weeks? Well, the way I like to think about the COP is there's sort of two stages. And I mean stage, like a theatrical stage. One platform of the COP is very much for the leaders, the politics, the big announcements, a bit of showmanship, and also deals that are done between companies, between countries, where they sort of use the COP as a stage to announce big things. So on that front, we're expecting a deal on slashing global methane emissions, which will do a lot to cut near-term warming. That's quite a big deal, although it's not formally part of the Paris Accord or anything like that. It's just outside of it. And we've also seen some very big news on forests and companies and countries committing to end deforestation with a big injection of new investment in um, anti-deforestation projects. And we're also expecting to see a lot more in coming days on electric vehicles and governments moving forward their electric vehicle targets. So that's sort of stage one of COP. And then stage two of COP is the bit that takes place in the negotiation rooms where you have all the government representatives in suits speaking into their microphones and it's kind of what you think of as a more UN-like process. And that part is going on right now, but it's obscured by all the leaders' statements and the speeches that are also happening at the same time. And so the negotiations are really the core of the COP and they usually run over time. And this year, the key negotiation issues are really about the rules for implementing the Paris Climate Accord. So When the Paris Pact was signed, it's sort of 26, 27 pages long. It didn't really iron out some of the thorny details, like if you are reporting your emissions as a country, how do you do that? And who verifies that your emissions reports are accurate? Or say that, uh, you know, we want to create a global carbon market, which the Paris Accord does say that. Uh, Well, how do we do that? What's the framework? Is there a global ledger for carbon offsets that have been bought or sold so that nobody is double counting the same projects twice. And another issue is the timeframes on which countries agree to set climate pledges. So all of these sound sort of technical and they're very much in the nitty gritty, but the some impact of these negotiated rules will be to determine whether or not the Paris Accord really has teeth, whether it has implementation integrity and whether everyone's playing on a level playing field when it comes to following what they've agreed to do in the Paris Agreement. Indeed. And I mean, you you mentioned implementation there. And I guess we've talked a bit about the role of China, but then there's also the United States. And although Joe Biden has come to the COP26, everybody knows how hard it is to get climate agreements through Congress. So how do people feel about the role that America's playing? I think there's really mixed views. I think in public, it's very, very much welcome. But I think in private, you do see, certainly hear European diplomats saying, well, there's perhaps a little bit of simmering resentment even that the US was sort of gone for four years and now they're back. And the US is certainly trying to demonstrate uh, and make a big show of its climate leadership at this COP. They've brought 12 or 13 cabinet members, a huge delegation along with Biden. And so the U.S. is really trying to make this a moment of leadership. But I think that does ring a bit hollow when the infrastructure bill hasn't been passed. Of course, I think Biden hopes it will be passed in coming days. But I think that all rings a bit hollow when uh, the U.S. hasn't actually enacted the policies that will allow it to reach its climate goals 
itself. So it's a bit of a difficult position. I think climate envoy John Kerry probably feels the heat from this more than anyone else because he's been crisscrossing the world, urging countries to do more. But of course, it's very, very hard for Biden to get his climate policies through Congress. So I think it's a bit of a mixed reception for the US here. And final couple of questions. I mean, we talked about the US, China, the UK is host. Boris Johnson, it's a big moment for him internationally. What's your impression of how the British have handled it? I know domestically there's been some criticism that they appointed a relatively low-profile figure in Alok Sharma as the person managing the run-up to the COP26. Well, I think the UK as host has managed to pull off a COP, which so far logistically has sort of worked. It's brought everyone together. It's been a big deal. And that's sort of what the COP host is supposed to do. And, And they have certainly done that. I think for Boris Johnson, it's been a moment when he gets to be the ringmaster, the showman. And, you know, we've seen everyone from David Attenborough and a video statement from the Queen. And there's a lot of theatricality around these opening days when the world leaders come together and and Johnson gets to host them. But I think that if you look more closely at the UK's position, um, we did just have a budget which did not mention climate at all. And the UK has been pretty slow to translate its 2050 net zero goal, which is legally binding. It was one of the first major economies to pass a legally binding 2050 net zero goal. It's been very slow to translate that into policies and to explain where the funding's going to come from to make this transition. The UK, of course, is still extracting oil and gas, and there's a big debate over this new coal mine, which Boris sort of, on if you get him on a good day, he says he'll stop the coal mine, and another day he might change his mind. But anyway, there's debate over whether this coal mine is going to go ahead. So certainly one thing I hear from a lot of people is that the UK is talking the talk, but maybe not really walking the walk. And finally, Leslie, you're in Glasgow for the whole two weeks of the conference. I mean, my recollection of previous cops is that they've generated periods of drama. There was a famous confrontation between the Chinese and American leaders at the Copenhagen cop. There was uh, Laurel Fabius with his green hammer proclaiming success at the end of Paris. Do you think uh, there's a chance that that kind of thing will happen again? Or is it more likely that once the leaders depart, it just becomes a more bureaucratic process? Well, I think the end of the cop is when things will really get quite heated So far, it's been fairly smooth, but the disagreements and divisions will be most on display as the negotiations move into their closing days. So that's certainly something to watch out for. That was Leslie Hook in Glasgow, ending this edition of the Rachman Review. Thanks for joining me. I hope you'll be able to join me again next week. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sick of being upsold at gyms? 
My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.